Hello. All right. Um, we got to fly. So um, find Romans 7 in your Bible. This is going to feel like secret church if you've ever been to that. Uh, I hope that you, I put it in the group me every week that what we're going to study the next day. I encourage you to read it ahead of time. I really hope you did this time. Um, you'll always get more out of it if you do. Um, and also this morning, I'm not, not even going to read the whole chapter, but I'll, I'll pull a Pastor Brian and say, just for a flavor of this, chap, of this passage, look with me in Romans 7. Um, let's start in, in verse 14. Um, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what... If I do what I, it's such a tongue twister. Now, if I do, why did I pick this passage? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now look down in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, I pray that this morning, in, even at the fast pace, I think we're going to have to move. Lord, would you, would you just, in our minds, would you help it slow down? Would you give us eyes to see the truth? Would you give us minds to understand it? Would you give us uh, uh, hearts to embrace it, um, wills to, to live out and carry out and obey whatever it is that, that it, this passage is admonishing us to do. Lord, um, give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we could spend a long time on this chapter as we could on any chapter in Romans, but we only have a few minutes. So uh, here, here's, here's what I want us to see if you're taking notes. Um, I'm going to try to cover all the big bases. We're only going to have two broad points uh, from this chapter. Um, but before we get to those two points, and, I'll, and before I tell you what those two points are, we're going to do a little introductory groundwork to this chapter. Why? Um, just to sort of set this chapter up for you. Because traditionally, there's a little bit of debate around Romans Seven specifically around this question is the Paul is the Paul that's talking in Romans seven is the autobiographical things he's saying in Romans seven is this is that um, Paul in his current life as a believer or is this Paul reaching back retrospectively and remembering what his thoughts and experiences were like when he was still an unbeliever before he came to Christ. Is this Paul the unbeliever talking, or is this Paul the believer talking? Uh, and that's a debate. And certainly there have been reputable scholars on both sides of that issue, and I'm going to try to explain where I come down on that question and why. And then having done that, um, I want to try to explain where Romans 7 fits into the whole flow of the book of Romans. Um, you know, knowing where, where we come down on what Romans 7 is, well, how does that contribute to what we've seen so far in 3, 4, 5, and 6, and then on into 8, all right? Because, um, I mean, I remember, like, 
what we just read. Think about what we just read. I mean, the flow so far. Chapters 1 through 3 was all about our sin and our guilt before God. And then at the end of that chapter, but certainly in chapters 4 and 5, it was about how are we made right with God at being sinners, how are we made right with God? Justification by faith alone was the dominant theme of chapters 4 and 5. And then chapter 6 was all about now that I'm justified by faith in Christ, how do I then walk in obedience and grow in sanctification um, in, in, in Christ? And if that's the flow so far, what then is the deal with chapter 7 when on the heels of all that, Paul is all of a sudden talking about the law? And, 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 and I'll try to get my take on that. And then after all that introductory stuff, we'll start at looking at the chapter a little more closely. And again, two broad points if you're taking notes. First, first point is going to be this, the uses of the law. The uses, plural, of the law. That's going to be verses 1 through 12, sort of. Verses 1 through 12, the uses of the law. And then the second point is going to be this, simply, this, the need for a Savior, the need for a Savior. That's what I'm going to see beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. So let's dive in and think, and think some, first about some of these introductory matters to try to give us a better place for understanding this chapter once we take a closer look at it. So like I said, there's a bit of debate over Romans 7. Not, it's not an incredibly serious debate. I mean, but it's a debate nonetheless over whether the autobiographical sections where he's saying things like, I don't do what I want to do, that, that bit, whether that is Paul currently as a believer um, or is it his retrospective remembrance of what his life was like before he came to Christ. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll say this, why, why is this even a debate in the first place? Why is that even debated? Uh, not to belabor all the points, but just a representative example of both sides of that debate. On, 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 Paul, on the side of uh, Paul as an unbeliever, just consider what Paul said in verse 14. That's, our, that's the verse we began with today. Verse 14 says, for, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, under, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's not something a believer can say about himself or herself. Sold under sin? Like, of the flesh? I mean, in the, ne in the very next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 2, he's going to say, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if you've been set free in Christ, how, in what sense, are you still sold under sin and of the flesh? That's, that's, that's unbeliever kind of talk. Um... But on the other hand, on Paul as a believer's side, consider what he says in verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's not the kind of thing that unbelievers go around saying either. I mean, the, the way, for example, that the prophet Isaiah described unbelievers in Isaiah 53, 6 is, All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have all turned to our own way, and it's not toward God or the love of his law. So if we've all turned our own way in rebellion to God, I'm not sure exactly how, apart from Christ, anyone delights in the law of God in their inner being. So there's the debate. Uh, what do we make of it? I think that most casual readers of Romans 7 tend to assume that this is Paul as a believer. 
Um, not just because of statements like verse 22, but here's, here's why. Because I think most casual readers read this chapter, and much of what Paul says in this chapter seems to resonate so much with their own experience in wrestling against sin, wrestling against temptation, often giving into it, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. And even when you're winning, it's a battle. Like Romans 7 just seems like, yes, Paul gets me. Like that's what we feel like. And we find great comfort in the fact that in, in our endless and sometimes disheartening struggle against our sin, at least that, 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 that seemed to be the experience of the believer Apostle Paul. I get that. Totally get that. I just don't think that's what Paul's doing here. Um, I believe that this is Paul retrospectively describing his life before Christ as an unbeliever. And before I say why I think that is, let me just say, if I just burst anybody's assurance balloon, I don't think that what I just said ought to deflate any comfort you may have taken uh, from the thought that this was Paul, the believer, struggling with his sin as you do yours. I say it shouldn't deflate that comfort of yours because you don't need this passage to find that comfort. You don't need this passage. For example, just consider what Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. He says, but I say, and this is believer Paul, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, because the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. For Paul to say that, even though he stated it in general terms applicable to every believer, it was, it, it, it was most certainly his own personal experience too. He had that war going on in his own heart of the spirit and the flesh, and sometimes he didn't do the things he wanted to do and knew it was right, right? Tempted to gratify the flesh, a battle to walk in the spirit, a war going on between the flesh and the spirit, such that often he knew the right thing to do, but, it, but, but his sinful desires won out and it kept him doing what, was, what he knew was right. So all I'd say, there's just one example. You don't need Romans 7 to, uh, to assure you that Paul knows where you are, even as a believer, as you struggle with your sin, right? Um, and to find that camaraderie with Paul, and that's a good thing, because it appears that Romans 7 is a description of the experience of Paul before Christ. Why? Because didn't, didn't you say verse 22 doesn't sound like something that an unbeliever would say? I did. But there's another way to look at what he says in verse 22. For example, when we get to Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul, we'll see Paul's description of the Jews in his day, unbelieving Jews in his day. And in, and in chapter 10, verse 2, he, this is what he's going to say about his unbelieving kinsmen. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's saying they have a sincere zeal for God. Problem is, they're just sincerely wrong. And you could say the same thing about Paul, the Pharisee, unbelieving Pharisee, about the law. He delighted in it, in his inner being. As he said, he was just sincerely wrong before he came to Christ. And to me, verse 14 seals it. 
that Paul is talking about in, in, in that what he, who the Paul is in Romans 7 is unbeliever Paul. He was sold under sin when he's the, the version of Paul that's being described here. That, this is the Paul who cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Leads me to the question, if that's true, what then is the place of Romans 7 in the flow of this book? Um, like I said earlier, the, the flow of the book so far is, is, was about our sin and our guilt and how, we're, how a sinner is justified before God by faith in Christ and then the sanctification that follows. How in the world does this chapter fit into that flow? Why all of a sudden this discussion of the law and, 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 and Paul's reflections on his life before Christ as an unbeliever? Here's how I see that. I think that Paul is... Once he's got through Romans 6, before he gets to Romans 8, he's going to circle back one more time uh, to those Jewish believers who were in Rome. Because the, the Rome was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. He's circling back to address the Jewish believers specifically. After all of that talk about justification by faith alone, uh, there had to be this nagging question in those Jewish believers uh, that would have been ingrained in them from the time they were born. Um, Paul, could you please clear up to me? What am I supposed to do with the law? This law that I have read and memorized and sung and tried to obey all my life long, does it just go away? Like what, what, and if, 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 it's all, if it's been all about justification by faith in Christ alone, then what was the purpose of the law to begin with? Why did I even need that if I'm just going to throw it away? And in that regard, um, that's why he's writing this, I think. And I, I, I think it's not going to be altogether different than what he already said in chapter 2. Um, but he's just simply going to re reinforce that in a more detailed way here. Okay, now, that was just a wee bit of an extended introduction. But I hope it helps you understand What's going on in this whole chapter before you get bogged down into the details? All that said, let's now dive in for a closer look um, in the time we have. We're going to do this in 15 minutes, guys. Um, think with me for a bit about the uses of the law. The uses of the law. It seems pretty clear from the early verses, which we didn't read just now, but if you read it ahead of time, you, you would know it. Or if you're just familiar with the passage, you'd know it. Um, that, that in these early verses, Paul is assuring the Jews that they are not in sin if, if they begin seeing a different role for the law in their lives than the one that they had always known their whole life. For all their lives, they had been keeping the law as a path for their justification before God. Um, and, and Paul has for chapters now in this letter told them it, it's not the path for righteousness before God. It's not the path for justification for anybody, but rather faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. To them, this was like a seismic shift. So that I don't, I, if I'm putting myself in their shoes, I would think that would take a long time maybe. i got to hear it over and over again before I'm comfortable with that. And so Paul seems to assure them that they have been set free from the, the demands of the law in that way. He opens the chapter using an analogy of a marriage covenant or marriage law to try to make to them this point. But notice, that, notice at the end of verse 1, Paul says, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. That seems pretty counterintuitive to Paul's point. 
The law is, if you're alive, you're, it's binding on you. And so some of the Jews had, had to have read that and been like, well, yeah, and we're still alive. So isn't the law still binding on us? And it's here where he brings in the analogy of marriage to uh, marriage law to make his point, which he will, which will set up his, his larger point. While, yes, in some sense, they are still alive. They're, they're reading the letter. Yeah, they're alive. But in another more important sense, as believers, they've already died. Try to follow what he's saying. Verses 2 and 3, Paul notes that the law stipulated at the time that, that a wife was bound by law to her husband for as long as her husband was alive. But once he died, she was no longer bound to him, but could marry another. That's basically verses 2 and 3. In other words, a death brought about a change in the covenant obligations, in the law obligations. Paul is saying the same thing is true for them as it pertains to to the law of Moses because a death has taken place and that death has set them free from that law obligation. He said, so he says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died. Yeah, in one sense you're alive, you're reading this, but in another sense you've died. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's how you died. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In other words, when they repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they were united to Christ, and when he died, they died. And when he raised, they were raised. He didn't, and, and, and by the way, when he died, by going that route for your justification before God, by going that route to make you right with God, it's not as if God is just now sweeping the, the law under the rug. No, Jesus kept it. He kept it, and now we're free from it. And he'll put it in verse 6, that they had been released from the law, having died with Christ, to that which held us captive. So they're no longer bound by the law in order to gain right standing before God. They can rest assured in that. But it seems like now Paul moves to assure them that it's not like the law played no purpose in their life. Like no, no good purpose, really. He's, he's, he's going to assure them that God has designed good uses for his law. Um, even though now they, have, in a sense, have been set free from it. And he emphasizes one of them to the Jews he's addressing, and, and that use is this. You can, you can write this down if you're taking notes. The righteous demands of the law are designed to lead sinners to look for a Savior. The righteous demands of the law are designed to lead sinners to look for a Savior. I'll say it one more time. The righteous demands of the law is are designed to lead sinners to look for a savior um the righteous demands of the law reveal the unrighteous desires in my heart and our inability to keep it and so we look to god is there another way out is there a savior that's where paul's argument begins to go in verses 7 through 12 he talks about how essentially whatever the law commanded he never could keep it certainly not consistently and even if he did obey the law it was for an improper motive and whatever the law prohibited it seems like that thing just multiplied in his heart and his life that's what he says at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 i wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet that's the 10th commandment 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. But he ends that, that section assuring them that even though it's painful to us to wrestle with all that, that's a good design of the law. That's a good design. We see that in the way he says in verse 10 that the law, rather than giving him life, proved to be death in him. But why? He says in verse 11, it wasn't because the, uh, of the law, but it was on sin that was the problem. But he concludes in verse 12, but the law, just realize the law, it is holy, it's good, it's righteous. It was doing a good work in you to show you that about yourself. It's a mercy of God that one of the uses of the law is to show us our need for a Savior. One whom God himself has provided for us. And Paul's going to spend the rest of this chapter making clear that need was greater than we realized. Before we turn to that point, I want to point out that this this first point, if you jotted it down, um, was the uses of the law. Plural. And I've only told you one of them. There's another one that I want to mention, but I'm going to wait, actually, till later in the next point. Okay, I'm going to make the next point and then circle back and give you that second use of the law. So leave some room in your notes. Uh, just hold on for that. So let's quickly think about how Paul emphasizes in the rest of the chapter our need for a Savior. Um, having pointed out already how whenever the law prohibited something, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, that's prohibiting something, that whenever it does that, whatever that thing was, it seemed to just be all up in our hearts. Don't walk on the grass, you're going to walk on the grass. He now takes a deeper dive into the, into the depth of that sinful entangling of our hearts, um, and hence our, our deeper need for a Savior. From verses 14 to 20, which we did read, Paul lays out a tongue-twisting litany of statements about his sinful nature. Verse 14 we saw is where he said before Christ he was sold under sin. That's pretty hopeless. Verse 15 says what that looked like in practice was doing what he knew was wrong, failing to do what he knew was right. Verse 18 he concluded, there's nothing good in me. Nothing good in me. In verse 19 he just repeats again what he said in verse 15 about his inability to do what, what he knew was right and an inability to refrain from doing what he knew was wrong. And then from verses 21 to 23, he draws the conclusions about himself that the law had showed him. Because he had said, again, he had said again back in verse 16 that the law is good. Don't forget that. So whatever conclusions he drew about himself, whatever conclusions he drew about his helpless situation from the law, that it was that first good use of the law that helped him to do that. And he concludes in verse 23 that where the law, where, where the law of Moses that he's talking about, it's a law outside of himself, right? Um, it, it's like here is the inside of me, but here's that law outside of me. And, and this, the law of Moses is like a law outside of me telling me, the right to do and informing me of the wrong to refrain from. It's outside of me, right? He says in verse 23, while that's true, the fact is there's another law going on inside of me. 
there's another law going on inside of me that was too strong for him to conquer. It was holding him captive to his sins and their consequences. And you can see that first use of the law. I mean, that, that law, that, that's the law of sin, right? That, that, that's the reason why I do this. I don't do it. I don't do this. I do it. That's why. That, that's a stronger law inside of you. You're, the, the law of sin in your heart, stronger than even this perfect law outside of you. But you can see that first use of the law come to full fruition when he, at the very end of the chapter, when at the conclusion of Paul's recounting of his own life, of the, of the law beating him down, revealing to him that, there, that uh, nothing but the fact that he's a wretched sinner, nothing good lies in him, sold under sin. He cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what the law is designed to do. Make you look for a Savior. Convince you that you're not good. You can't save yourself. And when you come to that place, the law has done its job. That's what Paul wants to convince these Jews of who had trusted Christ. When they trusted Christ, it was the law that helped them get there by convincing them that they needed a Savior. And when they trusted Christ, who kept the law perfectly for them and died for their sins and they died with Him, they're now free because the law had done its job for them. They were now free from that condemnation of the law, which is where he's going to go in the next chapter, chapter 8. But I said, we're actually going to do this thing. I'm so proud. I said there was one more purpose of the law that um, I wanted to mention. One more use. I only mentioned one in the, in the first point, and here seems like a good place to mention the second. Paul is exactly right. I'm not telling you that purpose yet. Hang on. Paul is exactly right that when they came to Christ, they died to the law. They died to it. They were released from the law. That's, that's to use his language. That's his point in this passage. And it's true. They, were, they died and they were released from that use of the law. That, that use was look for a Savior and they found Him. Like it did its job. But elsewhere in Paul's writing, he does hint at another use of the law. That doesn't just pertain to Jews, but pertains to me and you as well. Different from the first one. In 1 Timothy 1.8, 1 Timothy 1.8, uh, this is what Paul, Paul tells Timothy. He says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And he would say that that lawful use, in verse 11, he would say that this is in accordance with his glorious gospel. In other words, he's saying there is a use of the law that rides along with the gospel even for believers. Because he's telling Timothy, who's the pastor of the church at Ephesus, talk about that. And it's very similar to the first use. The difference is it's without the condemnation attached to the first use. 
The other use of the law that we need to know is this. The law for believers, the law for believers is meant to keep us coming back to the Savior. Grateful for His forgiveness. The law for believers is meant to keep us coming back to the Savior. Grateful for His forgiveness. Not seeking it grateful for it. Why would we need to keep reading the law? Even in your Bible reading plan, don't get bored in Leviticus. I've told you a long, it's been a long time since I said it, but I've told you a bunch of times in your Bible reading plans, when you get to Leviticus, I urge you, read it all in one sitting. Just read the whole book at one time. First of all, you'll be way ahead in your Bible reading plan. And second of all, you just get a whole lot more good out of it. it. You actually see repeated phrases, repeated themes that just edify your soul. You'll be like, this is the greatest thing I've ever read in my whole life. Leviticus is my favorite book. Read it all at once. Why would a believer need to keep reading things like Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and law, law, law? Because that sinful nature that Paul explained in such a tongue-twisting way in verses 14 through 20 still hangs around us. Long after we trust Christ and are born again. That's the Paul, that's the war Paul talked about in Galatians 5. The more we come back to the law as a part of our regular Bible reading, it keeps us humble and it keeps us in remembrance of our sins, but also in joyful remembrance of our Savior. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this.